The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith such as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned even, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I preach perfectly, sing beautifully, Listen attentively, give abundantly, think accurately, witness boldly, but have not love. Nothing at all. May God give us grace this morning to to work in you to change you such that your life will not be a waste, will not end up as nothing because you failed to live a life of love. we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 13, and my hope is that God would fall on us because this is simple stuff. There's nothing complex here this morning. We'll talk about some information, explain some things, but there's nothing complex. It's not hard to understand. It is hard to do. God must fall on us in grace to change in here, change the heart. That's my prayer, that he would use this passage to make you a lover. Last week we observed how Jesus' focus is shifting. John chapters 2 to 12, his focus is on the masses. And he's trying to display himself, to show off different aspects of himself again and again and again and again. And now here in 13, his focus is shifting onto the disciples, the 11 faithful disciples. And he's got a different message with them. He's teaching them and guiding them towards a general focus, preparing them for what's to come. What's to come immediately. Judas is going to bring back the guards. The cross is coming. And what's to come in a little bit longer term, explaining how the new community is supposed to be shaped. It's going to be built on them, the church. There's a lot to say about all that. And where he starts is pretty important. Without it, without what he starts with, there's question if they would have even survived question if we'll survive question if the outside world will look at us and scoff or will look at us and be somewhat drawn and intrigued love without it we are nothing without it we gain nothing we read our passage for this morning john chapter 13 verses 31 to the end of the chapter this is john 13 Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. At the end of last week's passage, Judas had been singled out as the one who was going to betray Jesus. This was not a surprise, you'll recall. Jesus has known this all along. We saw this first referred to back in chapter 6. Judas was then known as the one who would betray. Last week we saw, verses 10 and 11, that he was not clean. Verse 18, he was not one of the elect. It's always been known, not a surprise. Judas did not lose his salvation. Jesus is very clear. He never had it all along. But now he's left and he's kicking off the actual mechanism of the arrest. He's gone to get the guards. And now Jesus is sitting here with his cleansed community, his new community, 11 disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead, as I said. They don't, they don't get it. 15 hours from this point, 15 hours, Jesus is going to be dead. And they have no idea. That has not come home to roost. He's trying to prepare them for that. Verses 31 to 33 are basically saying, I'm leaving now in glory. This is going to look terrible to you, but it's actually glory. Now, the hour has finally come. The time is fulfilled. The time for the Son of Man to be glorified. That title, Son of Man, has been used a few times throughout this book, and we've never actually talked about it. It's a title that Jesus uses in part because it's vague. could have used other titles, like Messiah, for instance, that had a lot more loaded meaning in them. He could say, I'm the Messiah, which is true, but people would think, oh, well, I know what that means then, but they wouldn't. Carried a lot of baggage. They had a general misunderstanding, though they thought they knew. So he doesn't use that title. He doesn't want to confuse people. Instead, he uses something like the Son of Man that has a biblical reference, but it's kind of vague. The title ties us back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, where there is one depicted called the Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days and is given the right to reign over all things, to exercise dominion, to be worshipped. And it's left there. What is that? Lots of questions. It's kind of vague. Who who is that? How does he have the right to be worshipped? Only God can be worshipped. How does he reign over all things? Only God reigns over all things. Who is that? And it's kind of left there. And Jesus brings that term up and calls himself often the Son of Man. Now is the Son of Man glorified, right now, at the cross. God is glorified in him. The text says, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Well, how is that? To glorify God does not mean to make him glorious. He already is glorious. It means to show him for what he is, to make him seem to be glorious. So here at the cross, we are seeing something about this Son of Man, seeing something about God the Father. 
If you want to know who the Son is, if you want to know who the Father is, look at the cross. Holiness vindicated. Justice satisfied. Wrath appeased. Mercy offered. Grace presented, poured out. Love. All of these things, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, all of them culminating, they're coming together at this point, at the cross. We see God's eternal wisdom shown in His plan of redemption coming to pass at the cross. It's a display of God's glory. God shown. God lifted up. And if God is glorified in Christ, which He is, continue on in the next verse, to follow this closely, God will also glorify Christ in God Himself. Here's what that means. This is similar to what Jesus prays in chapter 17. It's a connection between many things that are happening now in 13 and 14 and what Jesus prays in 17. Similar to what he prays there in verses 4 and 5. There he's praying what here he is asserting. He says there, you can look at it, you can write it down. Father, I've come to earth. I came down to earth to glorify your name. That's been done. I've accomplished that. Now, take me back. Glorify me again in your presence with the glory that I've always had with you forever and ever. This book begins, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Remember that, we've seen that already. It's very clear, the grammar is very clear. God is with the Word, two, and God is the Word, one. It's the roots of Trinitarianism. It's the roots of the Trinity. And we're talking about two there, he hasn't introduced the Spirit yet, that comes up in chapter 14. Been hints about that all along, but he's going to talk about God the Spirit shortly. But there in the very beginning, he is extremely clear. The Word and God, the Word and God, both. Two, one. The Word, Jesus, has always had glory, but stepped out of heaven to come down to earth to take on a body so as to glorify the Father. And he's saying, that's done. Now I'm coming back. Think of it like this. This is a bit inexact, but think of it as glory as a king's robe. A heavy, ornate robe that says, that's the king. Jesus, God the Son, always worn that robe through eternity past, but, according to the wisdom of God, at a point in history, he took off that robe. Took off his right to be worshipped. The recognition, you say, that's the king because he's wearing the robe. He takes off the robe and steps out wearing a servant's towel. Comes to earth, humbling himself, even to the point of death. And now he's saying, I'm coming back, and I'm going to put on the robe again. I will be glorified, as I always was before. Seen wearing this robe of majesty, seen by all the heavenly host, seen one day by all people. Every single one of us are going to stand before this holy, glorified Christ and He will judge. Every one of us. He will be glorified in God the Father again. Jesus asks for that. Here in our passage, He asserts that's about to happen. 
What he's trying to say is that, guys, disciples 11, this is a glorious thing. It's about to look really brutal. It's about to look terrible. It is glory. It is glory for me, God the Son, for God the Father. It's glory for you. But there's also some sorrow mixed in it because, verse 33, little children, term of endearment, tender term, I'm leaving. There's glory here, but I'm leaving, and so there's going to be sorrow. We are going to be separated for a time. You're going to look for me, I can be able to find me. You won't be able to come with me. There's some sorrow there. I am going to come back. I am going to send God the Spirit, a comforter, a helper, but I will be gone. It's a similar thing that he said before, as he, as he mentions. He said this to the Jews several times, but there, when he said it in those places, he had a different tone, a different context. What he was saying essentially there to the Jewish leaders is, I'm leaving and you are going to miss your chance to trust me. Here he's saying, I'm leaving, I'm going to come back, but we're going to be apart for a while, so here's what I want you to do while I'm gone. That's the flow into the next verse. I give you a new commandment. I'm leaving in glory, I'm going to be gone, I'm going to build a new community here, and here's what I want that community to be like when I'm gone. Gives him a new commandment. It's not new because it's the first time he's talked about love. The Bible's full of love. The Old Testament's full of love. Jesus himself summarized the Old Testament by saying, what's, what's the summary of the law, Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. The Bible's always been about love. That's not what's new. What's new is the model. What's new is the foundation of that love. Love as I have loved you. Messiah love. Crucified Messiah love. That's the newness of this love. He's tying it to something quite different. There is no category in their mind for a crucified Messiah. They read Isaiah 53, they miss it. They read the, the, testaments, the, the Old Testament and they, they, they skip them. They miss it. That's the new part here. Love like I love you, to the cross, all the way to the end. That's what he's launching into, but he doesn't get very far with that because Peter interrupts him. Peter's mind is running a couple verses behind. Jesus is talking about love, and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. where are you going? That's two verses ago, but that's what Peter's got. Where are you going? Well, I'm going somewhere you can't follow me right now. Peter does not know what's going on. He has some glimpse that there's going to be some hardship in this, some struggle. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. And they go back and forth on this. And you see here, Peter's admirable attitude and his complete misunderstanding are writ all over this passage. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Really? You are going to lay down your life for me. It's the exact opposite of how it's going to work, but I appreciate the sentiment. Later, you will lay down your life for me, Peter. Later you will follow me, but not now. It's the introduction to what's called the farewell discourse. It's a long, if you, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, if you look at the next five chapters, they're all red because these are almost all Jesus' words. It's a long section of him teaching. And here's the introduction right here. I'm leaving in glory. Here's what I want you to be like. And the thing that we must get this morning, here's the main point of this passage, main point of of our time here this morning. 
The thing that we must get, it's very simple. We are to love one another like He does. Love the body of Christ like Christ does. Love His own like He does. Simple, straightforward. That's His command to us. Easy to understand, hard to do. Help us work towards that. I'm going to divide it into three parts or three different observations that I'm going to make here from this passage. Start with the foundation. Christ loves His own. Again, these are obvious points. Christ loves His own. Genuine believers. Those who have trusted Him by faith alone. That's the context here. Every time you see you or one another in these chapters, He's talking to and about the eleven disciples. The church that comes from them. True believers. Those who by faith have closed with Christ. Christ loves His own. Last week's text declared that to us in word and in deed. Very first verse of the chapter. Now Jesus loved His own and determined to love them all the way to the end. He looks at His own and He says, I love them all the way to the nth degree, to the final possible type of love. And I love them all the way to the end of my life. There's a double meaning there. It's the same thing. The greatest love that He could have for us is the love that He has for us at the cross. That's the word to us. But then it's clarified by the deed of the foot washing. And that's helpful to us because the question might arise, how is Jesus dying loved me? I don't see that. People, we wouldn't necessarily love each other by saying, I love you this much, let me kill myself. That, that does not make any sense. How is Jesus' death love? Because of the cleansing that he gives us. The foot washing explains that. The cross is Christ's fullest love to his own because it is the cleansing that you most need. It's the washing away of sin. If he gave you a Mercedes and a mansion and perfect health and beautiful kids and a marvelous job and did not cleanse you, you would be most pitied in all of the world. Lost, dirty before a holy God. Not cleansed, not forgiven, without hope, here or in the next life. This is what is most needed for us. We will be left not loved. If you've not come to Christ by faith alone, you're still here. You've got to see that. Got to see that. The only way to come to Christ, the only way to be cleansed, is by faith alone. To trust this work on this cross alone to cleanse you. You can't come to the cross any other way. You can't come to God without coming to the cross. Faith alone saves. Now, we do, we have faith, we're cleansed, and we do need to keep going back to Him to be repeatedly cleansed. That's the point of the foot washing. He says, you're clean, it's going to give you a little touch up here. I don't need to wash all of you, you're already clean. I'm going to wash your feet. We do need to go back to Him, confessing and repenting regularly, but He forgives because of the cross, because we've already been cleansed at the cross. 
It all centers on the cross. That's how Christ loves His own. His love is not only emotional, only affectionate. What I mean is this. We often depict love by saying things like, I love you. Or, I'm in love. Or, I love it when I see the beauty of a sunset in an aspen grove. What we're trying to get at with those words is that there's something kind of wonderful in our heart that we feel. We describe it as love. And that's fine. There's, there's an emotion in there. It's a totally fine use of the word love. But that's not exactly what we need to be thinking of here in this passage. Christ's love for his people starts with that. That's why he chose you. If he chose you, he chose you in love. Before you'd done anything, before you'd earned anything, you cannot earn Christ. He chose us in love apart from that. So it definitely starts with an emotional affection. He's fond of you because he's fond of you. Not because you did something. He's fond of you. It starts there, but it goes beyond just that to critical action. Action that was very hard for Jesus. 33 years of embracing humiliating humanness. He's God come to earth to take on flesh. Three years of walking and ministering and being ridiculed and opposed and misunderstood. All the while knowing that he is marching towards a lashing that's going to rip open his skin. A beating that's going to bruise him. Nails driven through his wrists and feet. To be hung up naked so as to suffocate to death. Laughed at by people. Cursed by God. I love you. From Jesus. Is more than sentiment. It's far more than affection. It is fierce and deadly. For him. Like a good shepherd. Stepping in between the wolves and his sheep. A father that I read of once who, while driving in his car, was confronted with a hornet on the inside of the windshield. Fearing for his kids and fearing for himself. No other option. Puts his hand over the hornet, cups it against the windshield, and while it stings him, he crushes it against the glass. Takes some courage to do that. It's strong, brave, sacrifice-embracing Blessing, bestowing love. He embraces the sacrifice of the cross. He reaches out and grabs it. He embraces the sacrifice of the cross so as to bestow on his own the greatest possible blessing forever and ever and ever. Fellowship with this glorious God. The cross glorifies the Father. The cross glorifies the Son. The cross gains you access to that glory. A chance to behold it and enjoy it. To drink it in for eternity. Love. Though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Affection. Humbly embracing action. We were rebels uninterested in Him in love with ourselves. And he embraced the sacrifice of the cross. Saints. Brothers and sisters. Jesus loves you. That can be a cute slogan on a bumper sticker. 
It's more than that. If you're a saint, if you're one of His own, if you've come to Him by faith, He loves you. Affectionately, actively, both. Preach that to yourself. You were given to Him by the Father. You are the flock of His hand. He shepherds you. The cross and after that in a hundred ways. Let it roll over you. Remind yourself of that. Through sickness and in health, richer, poorer, death never parts you. He loves you. You're His own. He will never leave you nor forsake you. May your mind be gripped by that. He ties our love. We're going to come to our love here. He ties our love to His love. Not just as a model. It is a model. We're going to talk about that. But not just as a model. Here's how you're supposed to love. But also as a a motive of sorts. A changing element. We're meant to go stand at the foot of the cross and see Him hanging there loving me And be awed by that. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself of that. Let it capture you. And then you look over and you see your brother there also being loved by him. And then what happens is is you're changed and he's changed. Then you look at him and you say, now remind me again of what we were arguing about. It's really difficult to get petty about what kind of hymnal to buy at the foot of the cross. Something in us that says, this is really stupid. This is way off. I cannot believe I'm arguing with you about this and that I'm upset with you. Look at that. Remind yourself constantly. It is supposed to produce change. We are transformed out here, changed out here by the renewing that happens in here. By the renewal of the mind, the inner you. How does that happen? Preach the cross to yourself. Daily. Constantly. Change happens. And then you turn towards this other person. You act towards them a little differently. That's the second point. First observation is a foundation. Christ loves his own. Growing out of that then, what are we supposed to do? It's the second thing. We too are to love one another. Obvious. It's His command here. He calls us to that. Brothers and sisters, love one another. Love from the heart earnestly. Like Peter says, First Peter. Love with brotherly affection like Paul tells us in Romans. Over all things put on love. Colossians, Ephesians. Love like I do, Jesus, right here. It's all over the Bible. This is to mark our community. This is what he expects us to be like. Lovers of one another. Just like he is. It's to be a banner flying over us. Love. And one obvious problem with using Jesus as a model for how we are to love, is that He's God, and He died on a cross to pay for sin. That's Him alone. We can't directly do that. We can't straight copy it. So what do we do with that? You look at it, you think about the principles involved there, and then you copy those. 
talked about this a little bit, but let me be explicit about this. Think about it. Jesus' love begins with an affection, a disposition towards us. It moves on to humility. It's taking the form of a servant, wrapping a towel around his waist, setting aside his outer garment. We saw that last week. Affection, humility, bent towards something. See, I could have an affection towards you and I could be a very humble person at home on my couch. You you realize that. Without the third point here, affection and humility don't get you anywhere. You need a third part. Affection and humility bent towards an action. In Jesus' case, a cleansing. The greatest good that people need, Jesus' affection and humility inclined him and drove him towards. Those principles, those things we can think about, those we can copy, those we're commanded to copy. You have an emotional affection combined with humility bent towards something. As believers, that's what we're supposed to be, that's what we're supposed to do. It starts with the emotional affection. This is a hard one. You cannot say, Christians, I'm talking to you if you're, if you're a Christian here, you cannot say, this other Christian right here for whom Christ died, whom he loves, I don't care about one way or the other. Can't say that. You have to have an affection for them. That kind of a love. Different than you love non-believers. I'm not saying you love them less, I'm saying you love the community more has to be there. It's unique affection. Did you hear that in those verses? Romans 12, 10. Love each other with brotherly affection. 1 Peter 1, 22, Love one another earnestly from the heart, from pure heart. We're not allowed to rest in, well, you know, I'm, I'm not hostile towards that person. Isn't that good enough? You know, we, we are peacefully cohabitating the same general space. That's okay, isn't it? No, it's not. Affection. Heart moved towards the brethren, brothers and sisters alike. And the Bible is poking at us here. A place of helplessness. I can't make myself feel something towards so-and-so. Find yourself thinking that right now? What's he talking about? I can't make myself feel affection towards so-and-so. In fact, so-and-so is rather difficult to love. She's kind of socially awkward. He's kind of a pain in the neck. Complains a lot. I suppose I can treat him right, but have an affection towards him? Earnestly? Brotherly affection from the heart? I don't know how to do that. Right there, you're at the point of needing heart-changing grace. You're right. You can't do that. It's commanded of you, and you can't do it. Fortunately, God can. That's God's main line of work. Heart change. Pouring grace into people to change them on the inside. So what do you do? You repent. You see the command to love, and you say, I can't do that. You repent. 
You turn away from not having an affection towards this person. You cry out, God, have mercy on me. God, give me grace. Stir my heart towards this person, towards these people, towards that family. Ask Him to help you see this person like He sees that person, dearly loved. Someone for whom He died. Special, precious to Him. Now don't misunderstand me. It is okay to have unique affection for certain people. If you're married and you have kids, you better have unique affection for your spouse more so than you do for my spouse. You better. And you better have unique affection for your kids more than you do for my kids. I do for mine than yours. You have to have unique affection. And it's quite normal that you do. What I'm what I'm poking here, what the Bible is getting against is this idea that I hear circulating sometimes. I don't have to like them, I just have to love them. As if, the, as if love has no affectional element in it. I love you, I don't like you. You, that, you can't say that. No. That's not how Jesus loves. Jesus does not say, I love you, I just don't like you. There's affection here. Required of you. And you can't produce it. Cry out to God. Repent. Turn away from that. It, it can happen in you. It happens in me. I am not a mushy, touchy-feely kind of person. So I deal with this all the time. Lack of affection for people. God changes me. He's doing it. Bit by bit. Sometimes I get very specific. This person. Help me to care. Help me to be kind. Help me to see him or her like you do. It's precious. You need that. You need to see the person that you're tempted to snipe at and argue with and bicker with and, and play one-upmanship with. You need to see that person that's precious in God's sight, loved by Jesus, one of his own, saved by him. In need of work, maybe. So are you. You need to see that. Cry out for Him to do that in you. And while that's happening, don't wait till it's done, because it's never going to be totally done, this side of heaven. But while that's happening, while you're trusting that, and you step out in humility, talked about this last week, you step out in humility thinking, what does this person need? And you apply your affection and humility to meet that need. There's the principles in Christ's love for us. I lay down my life at your feet. I think, what do you need? Maybe not what do you want. What do you need? I lay down my life to do that for you. You can't do that for everybody to the greatest extent all the time. It's not physically possible to do that. But you become a person who's like that. What exactly does this person need? Does that person need? I don't know. We're all different. We're all at a different stage in life. We're different genders, different ages. The exact thing that this person most needs right now is going to vary. You can read passages, though, like 1 Corinthians 13. Famous passage. It's not about marriage, though it's read at all weddings. It's about Christian love. You can read passages that give you some idea. This passage, in fact, gives us a hint, too. 
points us in a direction. This is not the answer. This is more like the goal that gives us the trajectory that the answer lies along, if that helps you. What did Jesus, in his love that was all the way to the end, what did he do for his own? He bought them access to God. He bought us access to his own presence forever. Fellowship with Christ forever. That's what you and I most need. That's the best thing that we can get. So somewhere along that trajectory is where good to you lies. I don't know what exactly it is today. It might just be buying you a cup of coffee. Encourage you. It might be confronting your sin. Let me stop for a second on that one because that one might sound counterintuitive. Sin is your enemy. If you're not a Christian, sin keeps you away from God entirely. If you are a Christian, sin inhibits your relationship. Sin is your enemy, not the person who points out your sin. That person's your friend. We would never think, if we're walking through a field and there's a landmine right there, and somebody said, hey, you're going the wrong way, turn, you're going to step in a landmine, we'd never think, what a mean person. We'd say, thank God for that, because I was about to die. Same thing with sin. We all need to get better at wanting our sin pointed out to us, seeing where the landmines are in our lives. We all need to get better at pointing out sin to others, graciously, yes, humbly, yes, looking over, avoiding as much as we can, yes, but nonetheless, being clear about it, or taking risks if we're not sure to graciously say, I don't know, but this area of your life right here, can we talk about that? Because sister, brother, I care about you and I don't know. Is that right or wrong? Let's talk. You need to get better at receiving that and better at saying that graciously. But we got to do it. It is not loving to not mention the landmine because maybe you're wrong or maybe they'll snap at you. So I just let them find it themselves. It's not loving. Love helping people, not hindering them, helping them towards communion with Jesus. That's love. A lot more could be said about that. I don't think there's any need, though, because I think it's pretty clear. I'm guessing that if you're like me, I need to explain some of these things here to can help us think rightly about it, but I'm guessing that if you're anything like me, understanding what love is is not the problem. Doing it is the problem. Because if we're honest, we get right down to it, we're in love with ourselves. I have a tremendous, decade-long love affair with me and you with you. It's our sin nature. And this command, love one another, is diametrically opposed to how I am, to how you are. I can't just say to somebody, do this. I can't say to somebody, fly. That's what it's like. If you skip the cross, it's like saying, fly. Flap your wings all you like. Not going to happen. Love one another I love myself far too much to love you. 
Christ must step in in grace and change, which is what the first point was about, which is why he holds that up first. The new part of the new commandment is love like this. Look at this. And now you come around to say, oh, what I have to repent of. When I interact with my family, spouse, kids, with you, when, when you go to committee meetings, when you chit-chat in the hallway, when you go to work, play golf, go on hikes, you're interacting with people. And by nature, your first thought is always about how it's going for you. I don't know if I'm having a good time. I don't know if I like this. That wasn't very encouraging. She insulted me. It's all about you. Automatically repent of that. Fix your mind and heart on the cross. Thank God that's not how God is. Never would have come. Fix your mind and heart on the cross. Turn away from yourself. Repent. Ask Him to change you in your affection. Ask Him to show you and equip you and empower you to be humble. Show you what need is and move you towards it. Wouldn't that be an awesome community? Don't you want to be a part of a people like that? Yes. We're made to be in relationships with people who love us. We crave that. He's given us the command. He's given us the power. It's grace available to you at the cross. We all want that. And you know what else? Other people do too. Jesus is shaping a community here. He wants us to be a loving community. He wants us to love one another because he wants one another loved. But he also has a missional element in this, an element related to mission. Draw that from verse 35. This is the third point. The third observation will be very brief here. Here's the third point. Love of one another attracts others. Verse 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is not meaning to say that there is somebody out there who's trying to just do an identification of who are the Christians and who are not. Oh, this person loves, one, loves the other Christians, so there must be one of them. Great, now we'll move on. He's not just keeping tally here. The thought is akin to what Jesus again prays in chapter 17. Verse 21, he prays that there would be unity among the believers, not far from love. There be unity that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's a witnessing element. It's what somebody once called the untried apologetic. You know what an apologetic is? An apologetic is an argument or a defense of something, a simple way to think about that. And this one has not been tried. We do all kinds of other stuff. We write all kinds of books about why the tomb was empty and what the Trinity means and how you must come by faith alone. And we write all these apologetic books about the existence of miracles, etc., etc., etc. Try all kinds of apologetics, except the one, this perhaps somewhat cynical guy meant, except for the one that Jesus said would actually work. Loving one another. We live in a world in which people do things for what it gets them. People act nice 
because it's going to get him some reward. People care for others because there's going to be a little check mark on their book somewhere. People act polite so that I get a good reputation. When you do those things because you actually love, that's unique. That will draw attention. It's compelling, it's attractive. We can write all kinds of books, memorize all kinds of facts, play fantastic songs, preach compelling sermons, witness boldly, give abundantly, speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if we have not love. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.